Hello, welcome to Can't Make This Up, a history podcast where we sit down with historians, journalists, and authors and talk about all kinds of history-related topics. My name is Kevin. I'm going to be your host. Uh, If you are brand new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, If you've been around for a while, thank you so much for tuning in every few weeks. I appreciate having you here again. Uh, Today, my guest is Catherine Stewart. Uh, She is an investigative journalist and the author of the recent book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Uh, Today is going to be an episode where we see where history intersects with religious belief uh, and intersects again with politics. Uh, You can kind of um, envision a three-way Venn diagram. Um, This book is of interest to me, um, partly because of my uh, background growing up uh, in a somewhat fundamentalist uh, evangelical tradition. Uh, Religion, particularly the history of religion, uh, is something that really interests me. I do a lot of uh, reading about this in my spare time, um, listen to, uh, you know, a lot of podcasts, watch documentaries about it. just something that's really fascinating to me, what people believe, why they believe the things they do, where those beliefs came from, how they change and evolve, and how they influence people to do things. Uh, And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, This is an episode where there will be some politics involved. Um, A lot of episodes on this show uh, deal with the way past, and so they're somewhat divorced from the modern political discourse. This episode is not quite like that. Um, Catherine and I talk about the origins of religious nationalism here in the U.S., going back to the mid-19th century. Uh, But also we talk about more contemporary issues, where uh, this has become more mainstream in recent decades. Um, So it's a very interesting look, but just so you are aware, there is some political discussion. Um, I have my political views. You have yours, no doubt. Catherine has hers. Uh, And that's all okay. Um, so I hope that you will enjoy today's, uh, discussion with Catherine Stewart, uh, and talking about a movement that I think is, is increasingly becoming relevant, concerning, uh, but also looking ahead, uh, is definitely perhaps a cause for concern down the road. Um, if you find that you enjoy this, uh, our discussion today and you want to learn more, um, read Catherine's book, The Power Worshippers. Uh, there is a link for it down in the description of this episode in your podcast app. Uh, and then if you uh, enjoy this uh, podcast and you would like to keep listening, uh, feel free to like and subscribe uh, so that you can stay up to date with new episodes as they come out. Uh, and then if you'd like to follow me on social media, I'm on at CMTU History, um, the same handle for Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Um, Facebook, you can find me at all the places. Uh, And then if you want to um, watch the show on YouTube, um, which people seem to be getting into, um, you can also find um, Can't Make This Up there as well. All right. Uh, I hope you will enjoy today's episode with Catherine Stewart, author of The Power Worshippers. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools And stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super unique Uh, Catherine Stewart, welcome to Can't Make This Up. Great to be here. Thanks so much for uh, engaging in this uh, conversation. Uh, And uh, definitely a very important conversation, I think. Um, So before we get started, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Well, I'm an investigative journalist. I got my start working for uh, Wayne Barrett at the Village Voice. He's He's a kind of infamous muckraker who published the first investigative biography of Donald Trump. And he just taught me so much. I mean, I started working for him and I was rather shy and he taught me to uh, dig deeper, be patient, follow the money, go to the source. Um, 
find people and uh, who had a lot of light on them and ask them uh, challenging questions. And I learned that, you know, I could be terrified <laughs> to do some of the work uh, that needed to be done, but if story needed to be told, uh, I should do it anyway. All right, and, and how did you just first discover um, the topic we're gonna talk about today, which is uh, religious nationalism? Yeah, well, it really started in 2009. I was living in Santa Barbara, California with my husband and uh, kids. Our daughter was uh, about six years old and I discovered that something called a Good News Club was coming to her public elementary school. Um, good News Clubs advertised themselves as um, after school Bible cl clubs um, from a quote, non-denominational standpoint. Now I was really naive at the time. I thought non-denominational meant non-sectarian. And look, I am a big free speech supporter. I also believe we can teach about the Bible even in public schools from a truly non-sectarian standpoint. In fact, I took a Bible class when I was in public school from a non-sectarian standpoint and I learned a lot, but um, I started to hear stories about other kids in town who attended these club uh, schools where, where these clubs, good news clubs had been established. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started to hear about how kids attending the clubs were targeting their peers for what I could only describe as faith-based bullying and bigotry. So we're talking about little kids here. They established themselves only in K through five or K through six schools. A centerpiece of the program is called the wordless book. It's used to convert children who are too young to read to a deeply fundamentalist form of evangelical Christianity. And so kids would say, I know the, the religion must be true because they taught it to me in school. And they were being encouraged by the teachers of these clubs to use their position within the public school to, to recruit their peers to the club. Um, they were offered candy sometimes or prizes or points for recruiting their fellow classmates. So this, you know, it confused, little kids can't make a distinction between an activity that's taught in their school from one that's endorsed by their school. They think if it's taught in the school, it must be what the school wants them to believe. Sure, to them, it's all the same. Exactly, to them, it's the same. They And other clubs were being excluded from the after-school forum, like oh, in our school, a karate club was told it couldn't meet on campus because people worried about the kids getting hurt. Um, and a, a painting class was being excluded because they thought, oh, it's gonna to be too messy. But I, I, when I realized that this club was being in the, in, uh, taught in the school and that it couldn't be excluded because of a, a 2001 Supreme Court decision, I wondered why it had this sort of super category you know, of protection. First of all, why are we putting a sectarian group in a public school when we can't put sectarian political groups in public schools like you can't have the democrats meeting in a public elementary school you know there were the you know santa barbara republicans in the public school because people might think that the government is endorsing that particular viewpoint so why can we mm -hmm. do that with religion so i started to sort of dig deeper and i um uh went to uh good news clubs from uh coast to coast to see what they were all about i went to the national um, convention of their sponsoring organization, which is called the Child Evangelism Fellowship. I uh, went through one of their training programs. And the more I learned, the more interested and frankly concerned I became, I heard leaders of the Child Evangelism Fellowship describe public schools in the most uh, contemptuous terms. They would talk about uh, kicking in the doors to the public schools and um, referring to other people's children as the harvest calling public schools mission fields and uh and then they really seemed to have no you know contempt for the whole institution of public schools to begin with they spoke about schools as government schools um and uh and then i i recognized that good news clubs are really just one small part of a much larger attack on public education as a whole so I uh, buy the religious right. So, and there's this kind of long-standing hostility in the religious right to public education. So I, I published a book about that in 2012, but I kept researching and digging further and recognized the attack on public education, which we're seeing in new forms today is actually just one small part of a larger attack on um, America as a, um, as a constitutional republic, a modern constitutional republic. 
So uh, the book that we're going to talk about today um, is your your latest book. It's called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could, um, just to explain to the audience the, the lengths to which you went in, in researching this, um, because I think uh, for some people who might identify as uh, even evangelical Christians, um, it might be easy to dismiss what you have to say uh, as you're just focusing on some kooky fringe extremists, uh, and then you're kind of extrapolating that to, uh, to a whole movement. Um, so if you could um, address that before we get started. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack here. First of all, Christianity, even evangelical Christianity in America is incredibly diverse. Um, mm -hmm. Many people mistakenly describe this movement as evangelical. It's not. I mean, it includes many evangelicals, but it excludes many evangelicals as well who reject the politics of conquest and division that it represents. And it draws in representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. And it even draws support from some people that do not identify as Christian at all. What unites them rather than any sort of specific theologies is a common political vision. And as I make clear in my book, you know, the movement is not just ideological, it's also organization driven. And it you know, includes right-wing policy groups, legal advocacy groups, networking organizations like the Council for National Policy, which gets different factions of the movement leadership on the same page. There's a far-right messaging sphere that it has helped to build or overlaps with in, in many uh, significant ways. Uh, the movement includes legislative initiatives. So again, it's sort of a more an exploitation of religion for political purposes than religion. And then we wanna think about, is it fringe? I mean, a key way to describe the movement is in terms of its political reach. It now, look, for years, the Republican party, I think, figured they could make use of this cohort because they delivered a reliable slice of the Republican votes, but really kept movement leadership and ideas apart from any real power, right? They might throw them a gratifying wink from time to time and sort of say, oh yeah, we're on your side, but it was um, really uh, kept out of the mainstream of the Republican Party. And now this is a movement that um, dominates the Republican Party and very few Republican politicians can succeed anymore without um, conforming to what their agenda is. I mean, it sort of shows why one of the reasons the Republican Party has been drawn so far to the right in recent years is because this movement, this its organization, you know, the infrastructure of the organization serves to deliver ever larger slices of, of the vote. And they do that through all these means that I can discuss, you know, later. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, if they know if you get people to vote on a single issue, you can control, control their vote. So they find these ways to direct messaging about abortion and, you know, same-sex marriage and things like that to control people's vote. Um, and um, so, yeah, it, the movement, um, you know, has enormous political reach now and basically dominates one of our two major political parties. Another way to measure the movement is in terms of money. I and mean, there's a lot of money in the Christian nationalist movement. The Federalist Society, for example, is one of the key legal organizations of the movement, and they're able to organize hundreds of millions of dollars worth of activism and campaigns on behalf of uh, Supreme Court uh, nomination fights, they spent a lot of money promoting candidates that are aligned with the movement's aims and ideologies. All six conservative justices on the Supreme Court are current or former um, uh, Federal Society members or have ties to it, current or former ties. And 90% of uh, former President Donald Trump's appellate court nominees had ties to the Federal Society. Um, another key legal organization of um, the religious right today is the Alliance Defending Freedom. Their most recent bu annual budget was over $100 million a year. It just shows how much funding is in this movement. So if you look at their political reach and the amount of funding they receive, you can see that it's a movement that has significant political impact. So it's not really a grassroots style movement formed by, um, you know, people who consider themselves religious or, you know, churches banding together. 
No, and listen, absolutely not a grassroots movement. I think when you're talking about the rank and file of the movement, people who may not themselves, you know, I wouldn't call them Christian nationalists necessarily, but who may be lending support to the agenda with their vote. You know, we're talking about a very wide range of people with different backgrounds, ethnicities, concerns, economic backgrounds. So when a lot of them, you know, cast their vote for the candidate who promises to end abortion or protect what they see as the traditional family, they're not arguing for major changes in the way our government is run. They're really just making a statement about themselves and what they value. They're just kind of, so with their vote, they may be lending support to political candidates who are pursuing a, 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 a religious nationalist agenda, but I wouldn't identify them themselves as, you know, their, their, their participation in the movement is, is really kind of indirect. But this is a leadership-driven movement. And I'm thinking about the leaders of those right-wing policy groups, the legal advocacy organizations, the members of organizations like the Council for National Policy and the like, or even some of the data initiatives, you know, they're after three things. Number one, they want a lot more power for themselves and their political allies. <clears throat> Number two, they want policies that privilege certain approved, supposedly approved religious and um, and political viewpoints, and they all want you know to be able to use the power of government to direct contempt to those who are different. This is where we're hearing a lot of the supposed religious liberty stuff, where they want to allow pharmacists, for instance, to deny women who need medication to complete their miscarriages safely. They you know, or or to not you know uh, have uh, access um, legal birth control. They want pharmacists to be able to you know sort of stand up there and say, oh, I'm not going to fill your prescription to complete your miscarriage safely because it's against my uh, religious views. I mean, that's, you know, a very contemptuous thing to do to somebody in need of health care. Um, and, and number three, the thing that they want, I think, to a largely underappreciated degree is access to both public money, taxpayer money for their initiatives, and also private money. The movement uh, is funded to a large degree by a number of hyper wealthy um, members of extended families that I profile in my book, uh, people like the Wilkes brothers, these fracking billionaires in Texas, the, the DeVos Prince family juggernaut, you know, these are enormously wealthy people. And I think they are as committed, if not more committed to far right economic positions as they are to right wing positions in the so-called culture wars. So, I mean, this is one of the big ironies about the movement. It claims to stand for family values, but the politicians that it is directing support for are promoting economic policies that are intensifying economic inequality. You know, low taxes or no taxes for the rich, minimal rights for the workforce, um, minimal or no regulation of business or the environment. These are things that are making it so much harder for so many American families to succeed. So they claim to stand for family values and yet are perfectly content to um, uh, work toward policies that are really putting a lot of American families under stress. And we can see that economic stress is one of the leading causes of family strife, divorce, violence, and all that. So um, I think a family that uh, a movement that would truly stand for family values would really try to promote policies that make it possible for families to succeed rather than put them under um, unnecessary economic stress. Um, so before we dive into the, the history of, of, of how this movement came to be, um, you know, and I think that's important with, with all current issues, you know, if you want to know what it's about, go look how we got here. Um, Cause that can reveal a lot of information. Um, but, you know, one thing I, I, I want to share, kind of lay my cards out on the table and why I found, uh, why I wanted to have you on and, and, and was drawn to your book, um, is I was raised in a uh, Southern Baptist denomination, which trends, you know, towards fundamentalism. Uh, granted, it was Southern Baptist in Ohio, which might be a little less, um, a little less intense than something in the Deep South. Um but, you know, I, I grew up, uh, you know, by the age of 10, I, you know, we, I remember, uh, you know, in church, they were talking about current events uh, and comparing it to the end times. 
Uh, and I remember getting sent into middle school with a little business card thing with a 1-800 number for a legal representative team to where if my teacher tried to keep me from praying in school, they would represent me. Um, so I kind of have a, a, a little bit of an insight into how people in, in these uh, more uh, fundamentalists and, and conservative religious uh, uh, forms of Christianity tend to think. Um, and the thing that, that was so concerning to me um, when I when I read your book is there's this uh, moral spiritual imperative that you know we're in uh, we as believers are being persecuted and we as believers have a moral uh, obligation to make sure that God's will is fulfilled uh, and other obligations civic obligations legal obligations are secondary to that um, and the the thing that concerns me and, and the reason I wanted to have you on is I feel that, that that sense can really be exploited. Yeah, you're really right about that. I mean, and we look at, um, for instance, what happened on January 6th when we really crossed Rubicon. There was a moment when movement leaders could have either decided, you know, okay, are we, let me look, they were all in for Donald Trump, a man who very few people could identify with a kind of family values that the uh, movement leaders is, you know, claim to, to support. But okay, let's just set aside that, right? When he started spouting his election lies, movement networks spread those lies too. And I think a lot of folks did that cynically because they knew very well that it just wasn't true, that he was lying about election. And then January 6th happened and they had a moment where they could decide, okay, are we going to support our country, you know? We had just had an attack on our on the foundations of our democracy, our electoral system, uh, our, our nation's capital, you know, and are we going to, you know, turn away from this and say this is unbiblical, this is against our values, or are they going to go along with the lies? And they went along with the lies. I was at, you know, over the past dozen years, I've been researching this movement. I've attended innumerable right wing conferences and strategy gatherings because you can't really know what what's happening unless people really. You, you hear what they're saying, not just when they're saying on CNN and talking to the general public, but when they're in spaces where the strategists are talking to one another. Behind closed and, doors. Right, behind, well, they're, they're not exactly closed doors. But I mean, anyone can go, but a lot of people just don't bother. And mm -hmm. I felt like it's important to go, you know? And so I'm there and they're saying, you know, we need to stand up for the January 6th people. And Ralph Reed, who is, I think, one of the most astute and seasoned strategists in this movement, he's nodding and he's saying, I think Donald Trump taught our movement a lot. And, you know, we can't fully understand, frankly, what happened on January 6th without understanding the role of this movement. Um, first, you know, of course, the ideology played a role because in the view of the insurrectionists, God chose Trump to help restore America as a supposedly Christian nation. So if Trump was defeated, however legitimately, legitimately it must be against God's will. So they can't, they can't accept an election if it doesn't go their way. And as you said, they see themselves engaged in this apocalyptic struggle between absolute good and absolute evil. And so they'll do anything, no matter how radical, to supposedly save America from a pluralistic democracy that we are supposed to be. Um, but second, in my view, this is also underappreciated. It's the networks of Christian nationalism that spread those election lies and primed the rank and file to believe Trump's, you know, lies and think that these radical actions were needed. So that's how they could call themselves patriots, even as they were attacking the foundations of our democracy and, and engaging in, frankly, terrorism. Um, so let's, um, you know, let's go into the history here. I think, I think most people would look at this issue and say, oh yeah, it goes back to the moral majority in, in the 70s. Um, but you go back a little bit further. You look at the 19th century. Um, how can we find the, the origins of um, religious nationalism uh, there in the 1800s? Well, in the power shippers, I trace the ideology back to the pro-slavery theologians people like Robert Louis Dabney and James Henley Thornwell. These men who are very powerful preachers, leaders of their uh, 
uh, in their denominations and their fellow travelers promoted the idea of an America whose legitimacy derives from its claim to represent an authentically Christian nation with a civic order rooted in hierarchies ordained by God, um, men over women, white people over black people, and whose law should be based on a reactionary reading of the Bible. So they argued these, uh, some people call it um, slaveholder theology. Um, a lot of folks, now in, in the Power Shippers, I also write about a number of anti-slavery theologians, people like William Wilberforce and Aidan Blue, Charles Dennison. Uh, I profile perhaps a dozen of these abolitionist theologians. So there was a sort of like today, different Christianities, right? Different versions, people reading the same texts and coming to very different conclusions. Uh, there were folks arguing for um, dignity and humanity and equality from those sacred texts. But as Frederick Douglass noted, they tended to be distinctly disempowered people within their denominations. He said it was the ministers of high standing. He called them the $5,000 divines because that $5,000 is a lot of time in those days. The ministers of high standing, he said, were on the, on the side, um, almost to a man of those uh, promoting slavery or at least having made their peace with it. Um, so um, those pro-slavery theologians like Christian nationalist leaders today, along with the segregationist theologians in later years, cast voices promoting equality and justice as atheistic, communistic, and or representatives of liberal elites. Now, um, some specifics have changed. Obviously, uh, almost no theologians today openly endorse slavery and racial segregation. Um, but much of the stuff of reactionary theologians of earlier years has remained a, a cornerstone of Christian nationalism today. Um, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I want to try and paraphrase a quote from James Henley Thornwell, who was talking about the abolitionists. You know, he is a pro-slavery theologian. He was very opposed to abolitionism. And he said the parties in this conflict are atheist, communist, socialists on the one side and friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. He's identifying order and regulated freedom with pro-slavery, the with the, uh, uh, the justification of slavery and atheism and communism and socialism with the, um, with the abolitionists. And you hear this kind of, these accusations of atheism, communism and socialism still bandied about constantly by religious right leaders of today, by Christian nationalist leaders of today. Anyone who is opposed to their agenda must be a communist or an atheist or a socialist. I mean, and, and, and I've heard this kind of language over and over in at these right-wing conferences I've attended. Democrats are not cast as people who happen to represent, represent different political viewpoints and people who are liberal Christians are not cast as uh, also Christians, but representing a different reading of the sacred texts. They are fake Christians, um, atheists, who many of whom uh, anchor their um, their uh, ethics and things that, like you know, e empathy and the idea of intrinsic human dignity, mm -hmm. um, are cast as absolutely amoral and responsible for everything bad that happens in the world. So you see that there is this kind of thing between a very hierarchical. Um, obedience-focused biblical literalism, the idea that, oh, you can't question the idea that 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 women should should be subordinate to their husbands, because, well, that's what God wanted. I mean, that kind these kinds of ideologies are um have a deep history. So um uh, if we fast forward a, a little bit, you identify uh, another pivotal figure. Uh, in the the early 20th century, um, mid 20th century, um, uh, R.J. Rushdoony. Um, who is he, and, wh and why is he so pivotal to this history? Rushdoony was a really interesting mid-century theologian. I, as I was researching the power worshippers, I mean, he was incredibly prolific. I sort of fell down a Rushdoony rabbit hole. <laughs> and honestly, spent like an entire summer reading his books, Institutes of Biblical Law. Um, uh, so many other uh, uh, of his works. He was uh, known as a father of a religious movement called uh, Christian Reconstructionism. Um, he drew from those pro-slavery theologians. He was an admirer of Robert Louis, um, of, uh, of Dab Dabney, 
And he didn't just admire his work and cite him, he also reprinted some of his works through his printing comp comp uh, company. It was called Calcedon Publishing, I think. Um, and uh, and uh, he, he drew from them. He also drew from some uh, earlier Dutch theologians. Um, and he came up with this idea that there's no neutrality. Like most of us understand that, you know, if you don't have uh, the idea of religious neutrality, public schools, for instance, they neither promote nor denigrate any particular religious viewpoint. And that's how it should be because they should be comfortable for families of all backgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can be a Christian and send your kids to public school and they're not going to come away with hostility to Christianity. You can be uh, Jewish or Muslim and supposedly the public schools aren't going to promote your, your own religion and they're not going to denigrate your religion. And that's how it should be. But the, um, the reconstructionists said that there is no neutrality. If you're not affirming our religious viewpoint, you are hostile to it. And he also came up with the idea that law should be based on the Bible, strict on a strict reading of the Bible. You know, he, he was just very extreme in a lot of ways. One thing that he promoted uh, was a hostility to public education. He called public schools atheistic, amoral. Uh, they train women to be men. Uh, they promote disintegration into the void. This was in the like 1950s or so that he wrote this, or maybe early 1960s. So he was he was really very extreme, and his ideas have. This was during the Cold War with communism, kind of the specter lurking in the background as well. Well, the interesting thing about communism, Christian nationalism, in the com communist era was that um, uh, leaders tended to focus on an external enemy. And, um, you know, there was a lot of sort of, frankly, sort of soft promotion of America as a supposedly Christian nation in reaction to the supposedly God, to the godless communists, right? So, mm -hmm. but it wasn't so about much about biblical literalism. It wasn't about, you know, the, basing laws on the Bible. He was just saying, well, we are Americans and that's why they, they included in God we trust on our, um, you know, as a national motto and put in God we trust on our money and things like that was to sort of distinguish us from this external enemy. But today, religious nationalist leaders are actually identifying fellow Americans as the greatest threat to our republic. When Donald Trump spoke at the last Road to Majority conference, he said the greatest threat is not our geopolitical enemies, as dangerous as they are. The greatest threat to our country is our internal enemies. And I think you you all know who they are. And he was speaking of Democrats and speaker after speaker echoed those same talking points. They're casting fellow Americans as a dangerous internal enemy. And this is really dangerous language, really dangerous language. It reminds me of, you know, a few weeks ago, I was watching Russian state television and one of their very popular um, talking heads was speaking and he was talking to the army, the Russian army. And he's, he was talking about Ukrainians. He said, they're godless and they're little devils and you good Orthodox soldiers, you need to get in there and finish them off. This is the language of genocide. We're starting to see this kind of level of, um, of, 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 of language being used in America. And, and it's, it's deeply unfortunate. And frankly, I think it's dangerous. Um, yeah, and you, um, oh, his name escapes me. Uh, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox, uh, Krill, Kurl? Kurl, uh, yeah. Who kind of offers a religious justification for for what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Yeah, it shows, and, and they're, they're actually hostile to members of the uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church. I mean, they frankly share... Uh, so much of the same religion. And it really shows that this isn't about theology. This is really about politics. Mm -hmm. And religion can be exploited for political purposes, even nefarious political purposes. You know, you, you talked a, li a little bit about how um, the idea of, of America as, as a Christian nation, um, in, in, in what ways has it been uh, important to uh, this movement to use history itself? As, as a tool to, to further its agenda. As, as a historian, that concerns me a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, the movement overall has relied on a handful of people um, and, and very particularly uh, folks like David Barton 
to come up with a kind of version of the history that they like, because they know that in order to cast America as a supposedly Christian nation in the way that they want to define it, they need to have a sort of alternate version of American history. And David Barton, look, I describe him and many others have described him as a pseudo historian. Um, his book won uh, a prize for least credible book in American history, <laughs> History News Network. He, uh, his, one of his books is called The Jefferson Lies. He's trying to sort of argue that people misunderstand Thomas Jefferson from whose pen the term separation of church and state flows. So he tries to argue that people misunderstand Jefferson. He comes up with this book called uh, The Jefferson Lies. And his own book publisher, Thomas Nelson Publishing, which is a religious book, a Christian book publisher, withdrew the book because they said it lacked um, uh, credibility in matters of fact. Uh, David Barton has also um, famously made up quotes from the founders for which that there is no evidence that they actually existed. Nevertheless, you know, even though he's been discredited over and over by accredited historians, uh, many of them Christian themselves, people like uh, Throckmorton, um, John Fee, uh, he's been embraced, like this has done nothing to decrease his influence within the movement. They, they love his work because he tells them the stories that they need to hear, which is that, you know, America's founders were all Bible thumping and intended to uh, establish an authentically Christian nation. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. America's founders proudly created the world's first secular republic, uh, a republic intended to, you know, um, be for the people, you know, by the people, for the people, um, and not to serve the uh, purposes of any particular god or pope or, or further a particular religious agenda but to serve people, to be led you know, by the people, of the people, by the people, and for the people. But this idea, of course, is antithetical to movement leaders. So, um, you know, in, in The Power Worshippers, I actually found David Barton at the heart of so many initiatives because his telling of history is so critical, as, you know, fake telling, you know, sort of repurposing of history, repurposing of our real history, you know, retelling of our history is so important to the movement. Um, that, um, you know, I call him actually the Where's Waldo of the Christian Nationalist Movement because he was, sits on so many boards and initiatives. Um, he's got links to the Republican Party. Um, he's got links to pastor networks. Um, so that's, uh, that's a, a, a very important uh, to understand when, when you hear um, religious right leaders talk about America's founding as supposedly Judeo-Christian nation more often than not, they're referring to something that um, that uh, that they heard from David Barton. All right. And one area of your book that I found uh, really fascinating had to do with the history of abortion as a, uh, a political plank. Um, not what I expected. I, I would have assumed that, you know, abor abortion has always been a key component of, of um, the, the evangelical vote, um, but that had an evolution over time. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Paul Weirich, and I think I'm saying that right, uh, and how yeah. he saw an opportunity with the issue of abortion in the 70s? Yeah, well, listen, let's not forget that when Roe versus Wade passed, most Protestant Republicans Republicans supported it. Gary, Barry, Gary Gold, uh, uh, Barry Goldwater, that great conservative hero, he supported abortion law liberalization early in his career. Uh, Ronald Reagan signed the most liberal abortion law um, when he was the governor of California. And Betty Ford hailed Roe versus Wade as a great, great decision. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention, I found this fascinating. They published statements in 1971 and 1974 affirming support for abortion law liberalization. And when Roe versus Wade passed 1973, they published a, an editorial in one of their publications, hailing the law as what they called a sensible middle ground um, between- I, When I read that, my jaw hit the table. <laughs> yeah, you look it up. I mean, it's this is very well documented stuff. And I actually went through 
the um, there are all these sort of Republican national conventions, and um, they, there's all this archived material that you can go through through um, various means, looking at sort of discussions around abortion. I think when when pro-life activists like Phyllis Schlafly started to try to interview uh, in, introduce uh, anti-abortion uh, ideas into uh, the Republican Party flank. People were astonished and they couldn't believe this was happening because at the time abortion was viewed as a Catholic issue, not as a Protestant issue. Um, they uh, felt like uh, the idea of um, families, you know, having the, uh, the number of children that they wanted and could afford accorded with middle-class Protestant values. And uh, even within the world, the Catholic world, even though abortion had been forbidden by canon law, um, many Catholics uh, disagreed with that position and, uh, you know, just rank and file Catholics. And also it did not reliably divide Republicans from Protestants. Many uh, pro-life voices in the Catholic world conflated it with other policies that were intended to help the poor, help the disempowered, help the vulnerable. And, um, and so they were actually sort of conflated with other policies that were cast as progressive. Um, so here's what happened. Here's how this all changed and how abortion became the political issue it is today. A number of activists like Paul Weirich, Phyllis Schlafly, Howard Phillips and others, they felt the Republican party of the time had become too liberal, too soft on communism. They were really worried about communism, um, but they were also, you know, they joined together with some uh, ultra conservative Catholic figures like Richard John Newhouse um, and um, Weigel. And they all wanted to sort of ignite a hyper-conservative counter-revolution and drag the Republican party off to the right. They felt they were actually, you know, some of them articulated the idea that they were radicals. They didn't want to you know, change the existing order or shift it slightly. They really wanted to create a new order, a new hyper-conservative Republican party. Um, they were also paired up with, you know, some hyper, they knew that the, they studied the successes of the left. You know, Paul Weirich was a very smart guy. He studied the successes of left and he saw that the left had at the time what the right needed, which was religion, because at the time, American Protestantism was quite progressive overall. Um, and, and so he thought, well, we need to ally ourselves with some of these electronic ministers, people like Jerry Falwell, um, Bob Jones, there were these very, you know, more hyper-conservative religious figures. So they drew them into their networks. And here's the thing that got those, those folks up in the morning. People like Bob Jones were running segregated, racially segregated religious schools. And the IRS was starting to look at those racially segregated schools and scratch their heads and say, why are we giving these people tax privileges? They're segregating their schools by race. That's really not okay. And so this is the thing that really got people like um, the uh, like the the Bob Joneses and the Falwells and 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 folks like that upset. They they thought that they had a right not just to segregate the races, but to um, receive tax privileges for the purpose. But they needed, they all need, knew that they needed like a rallying cry, a really effective rallying cry for their movement. And stop the tax on segregation wasn't gonna cut it. It's just so ugly, isn't it? So they sort of went down, they you know, had this meeting, they went down a laundry list of ideas. They thought about you know, going after women's equality, but the ERA was kind of going down in flames already. They thought about you know, emphasizing the issue of prayer in schools, but that tended to alienate the Catholics. Um, and, you know, they went down some other issues and when they got to the issue of abortion, it was like a light bulb went off and they thought, huh, that could work because it tended to get, tap into issues around identity and family and anxieties around gender. So over time, these movement leaders purged pro-choice voices from the Republican party and it took a lot of effort. In fact, Phyllis Schlafly wrote a really fantastic book about that process. It's called How the Republican Party Became Pro-Life. See, it wasn't pro-life. It only became pro-life because of the, um, as a consequence of the actions of her and others like her who really made it so. They know very well if you can get people to vote on a single issue, you can control their vote. 
So they devoted all of these resources into number one, sidelining any pro-choice Republican voices, you know, and ending the sort of Republicans for choice groups and things like that. And number two, getting everybody on the same page, getting them all to realize that this, if there's no victory without unity, and that's what I, that frankly, the a phrase that I've heard in at uh, anti-abortion conferences like the National Pro-Life Summit, there's no victory without unity. If you can get people to vote on that single issue, you can control their vote. So um, I, I know you got to get going here in, in a few minutes, but um, if I could ask one more thing um, that comes up in your book periodically, um, and that is a specific kind of theology called dominionism uh, that I think a lot of people might not be uh, familiar with, um, but it kind of, to me, kind of foreshadows where this movement might be going from here. Um, if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about, about what is that? Yeah, thanks for asking. In Seven Mountains Dominionism is a radically anti-democratic ideology that says the seven molders or mountains of culture or sometimes referred to as the peaks of civilization should be dominated by Christians of a certain type. And they include these peaks as finance, government, uh, education, arts and entertainment, and things like that, sort of seven key peaks of civilization. The entire Christian nationalist movement is not Seven Mountains Dominionist. I think there are many, um, say, political preachers within that who are lending their support to that movement who are not themselves Dominionist. Mm -hmm. But Dominionist ideas were once really sidelined within the movement, and now they are not, like if that last couple of road to majority conferences that I've attended, there were specific breakout sessions on seven mountains, uh, dominionism uh, in, in 2001, there was one breakout session and seven mountains dominionism was very well attended. And in 2000, uh, 2022, there were two breakout sessions on seven mountains dominionism and other speakers who were not at those breakout sessions incorporated the language of seven mountains um, many of them did. And so it shows that dominionism as an ideology um, is, is drawing closer to the center of the movement. And it's radically anti-democratic because it says that, you know, um, it, it doesn't believe in the idea of a pluralistic democracy, um, a government of, by, and for the people. It says only Christians of a very certain type are supposed to be dominating those peaks in in and they 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 cast that as taking dominion back from satan so it goes a little bit to that rush dooney idea where there's no neutrality if their folks aren't in control satan's in control rather than oh people with a different political viewpoint or maybe people with a different faith tradition which is how a democracy is uh, in a pluralistic society is supposed to work you know how we're not supposed to be you know a government of, by, and for people of a very specific interpretation of one religion. We are supposed to be a government of, by, and for the people, all the people. Uh, and so, so is that becoming a little bit more, um, maybe mainstream's not the right word, but is absolutely, that- No, it's absolutely mainstreamed within the movement. If you've got a longtime religious right activist like Ralph Reed, featuring Seven Mountains Dominion um, uh, panels and breakout sessions at his annual gathering, then it's been main, it's becoming mainstreamed. If you have groups like Ziklag, and this is a, an organization where um, uh, it's very secretive, but um, Mike Pence spoke at one of their events. Uh, Mike Flynn also spoke at the same events. Other prominent Republican leaders have spoken at, I think it was 2021, spoke at some of their events and brought them together with very, very high network donors. Um, they actually had a whole panel on seven mountains there too. I mean, so you're seeing the seven mountains stuff um, really mainstreamed within the movement. And, uh, and I, frankly, I think that's frightening and I think everyone should be deeply concerned about it as well. Yeah, definitely creepy. Yeah, what, one thing, um, cause I, I had heard about this before uh, and then learned a lot more in your book. Uh, but one thing I, I noticed is one, uh, one of my favorite bands, uh, a Christian band called Skillet, their latest album is called Dominion. It talks about uh, being in a war against uh, taking the country back. And I, I, 
the the lead singer has started a podcast talking about fighting against the principalities and powers. Principalities and powers. The Ephesians quote, like the those quotes from Ephesians are incredibly popular, especially within uh, Pentecostal and often cited in Pentecostal and neo charismatic spaces. Uh, and maybe this is a little bit insider baseball, but I'm starting to hear that kind of quote being used um, in other, uh, so many other spaces and those kinds of ideas, like the idea that we're in, you know, engaged in spiritual warfare and then the connection made between spiritual warfare and literal <laughs> physical warfare. Um, you know, it's like, it's no longer just being used and it's being, for a long time, that kind of uh, phrasing seemed very metaphorical, right? Mm -hmm. And and didn't seem like it was, you know, relating to any on the ground um, activism. But now when you start to see groups like the Oath Keepers or these sort of um, white supremacist groups adapting a kind of Christian nationalist rhetoric themselves and talking about literal warfare, I just don't think, um, you know, post January 6th, we can really ignore the fact that, um, that this movement, the rhetoric of its leaders is frankly bamboozling and, and, and radicalizing large sector of Americans. Some folks have pointed to surveys where large numbers of folks, like a really shockingly large number, still a minority of Republicans to be sure, but a much larger percentage than before are saying that you know, literal, you know, literal battle may be necessary within our country in our time. And, and um, look, um, we, this is not, it's not good. Yeah, and I, I think you, you know, wholeheartedly believe that you're in a holy war against Satan and his minions. You can, you can justify quite a, quite a bit. You can justify harming actual human beings. I mean, this is, you know, if you look at the way stories, biblical stories like the war on the Amalekites has been used to rally up Hutu, uh, Tutsi, uh, Hutus against Tutsis, um, uh, folks in Northern Ireland in that conflict, so many other conflicts in our, in our, in our country and in, in many other countries around the world are, you, you know, how do you get people to, to do harm to fellow citizens? You say, well, those fellow citizens aren't citizens with a different point of view. They're actually demonic and, um, Literally demonizing the enemy is um, is is really really uh, concerning. Now, obviously, you know metaphors of battle uh, and fighting as metaphor is is very common in all political spaces. But the rhetoric being used by many religious right leaders and political readers to describe Democrats not as fellow citizens, fellow Americans who happen to take a different point of view, but literally as a demonic internal enemy. There's a deeply concerning development. Um, so I guess if, if just um, you know maybe ask you for a parting thought. Um, what you know what would you say to the listener who's who's like uh, you know yeah I go to church my faith is important to me I you know I like going to my Bible small group um, but then hearing this stuff um, you well, know, it, what would you yeah. say to them? Look, uh, you know America is a very religious country and I think religious freedom is. Uh, one of our most cherished principle, principles. It includes, you know, the freedom to worship any god or sacred idea or none. Um, but it also includes the idea to not be compelled to worship any uh, any religion if you don't want to, or be compelled to support any religion with your money if you don't want to. You know, we're all free to uh, give to our own faith traditions and congregations, um, but we shouldn't be asking other people to do it um, as well. And, uh, and I think it's really important to remember that, you know, Americans, if you're talking about policies, you can have, we, we can all have our faith and, and argue for policies that we believe in and our values. But if you're arguing for laws that all of Americans should, should, um, should conform to, we should be arguing on commonly held ideas that people of faith traditions, like the idea of loving your neighbor it's a deeply Christian idea. It's also an idea that is found in almost every other major faith tradition. Um, the idea of uh, empathy, kindness, um, uh, uh, the idea of you know using facts and reason to argue for public policy, not just well because my my God tells me so, so you all have to listen to my God. Um, 
that's, you know, something that I think is important to remember is that, you know, this is not remotely an attack on religion or on religious freedom. It's really arguing for kind of mm, the, the, the principles of equality and pluralism and the idea of government of the people, by the people and for the people, all the people. And the second thing I wanna say is I often think back to the world, two of the religious right leaders I wrote about, like Ralph Reed, he said, pay no attention to the polls, all that matters is who turns out on election day. And he's right. I mean, I think one thing the religious right does that's really admirable is they have a very positive voting culture. And so they punch above their political weight because they vote in disproportionate numbers. And I think if those of us who reject these politics of conquest and division would uh, take heed and not just turn out ourselves to vote in, in all elections, not just national, but also local and state, but also bring our, our fellow citizens to the polls and help them understand that their vote matters, we would be in much better shape. The second thing I think about is the words of David Barton. Uh, some time ago, he wrote to his people, arm yourself with a mentality, not of a, uh, a, a sprinter, but with a distance, but the mentality of a distance runner. And he's right. This was some time ago. And he was saying, be patient and work slowly, but surely and steadily toward your goal. And I think if we're looking at the fact that we have now a grotesquely unrepresentative Supreme Court, we are going to sustain losses for some time. But um, now is the time to do what, what they did back in, in the late 1970s. Paul Weyrich, Phyllis Schlafly, sort of start planning and, and be careful and strategic. And remember, we are the majority of the population. We need to have a big tent from people on the, on the you know, left, Bernie supporters to people sort of on the moderate right, who still like a big tent is really necessary to defeat this movement because most Americans do not agree with their agenda. They only dominate because of their, the way, the strategic way that they've been operating for so many years. Like, so for instance, only 14% of Americans support a total ban on abortion. The overwhelming majority of Americans support access to abortion in at least some form far beyond what those abortion abolitionists as they call themselves want. And yet that's what we're gonna be getting in our laws. It's a grotesquely unpopular decision. So we you know, may disagree on some of the specifics about that, but there's more that we can agree on than disagree on. And we need to focus on that and turn out to vote. All right, well, uh, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, share some of your, your book with us. Um, Again, the book is called The, the Power Worshippers, uh, and we kind of only hit the highlights here. There's a lot more of interesting detail uh, in the book. Uh, if people are intrigued by this and want to learn more or uh, want to learn more about you, uh, where can they go? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Kath S. Stewart. There are two S's there. And I, so I'm kind of lazy, but I, I sometimes archive my work on katherinestewart.me, which is my website, katherinestewart.me. Um, maybe I'll update it. Um, I put a lot of my work up there. And, um, you know, I contribute to a wide variety of publications, including the New York Times, the New Republic, the Guardian, um, the Atlantic, and, and NBC and others. So thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to, to be with you today. Thank you. Welcome back. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Can't Make This Up. Uh, I hope that you found my conversation with Catherine to be interesting and informative. Uh, hopefully you were able to learn, just as I did, uh, a little bit of the history uh, behind this movement that is uh, more frequently uh, entering the headlines today. Uh, again, if you would like to pick up a copy of The Power Worshippers, there's a link for that down below in the description of this episode. Um, looking ahead, um, next episode uh, is one that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you. Uh, I spoke with Kim Taylor Blakemore. She is a historical novelist uh, who has written a book called The Deception, uh, which takes place 
during the spiritualist movement of the mid and late 19th century, where mediums uh, were reputed to communicate uh, with the dead. Uh, and these um, young women, primarily women, uh, were able to develop quite a following um, at a time when a lot of people uh, had recently lost loved ones during the Civil War, uh, and at a time where there weren't a lot of opportunities for young women to have agency uh, like that. Uh, so, very interesting topic. The book is super interesting. It's a fun fictional read, uh, and so I hope you'll stick around for that conversation next time. Perfect for Halloween. Uh, and then a little bit further afield, uh, I'm going to be talking uh, with author um, Nick Reynolds, uh, who does have a, a background in the intelligence community, uh, and he has written a book called Need to Know uh, about the origins of um, the American intelligence apparatus uh, in the years of World War II. So super interesting book. Looking forward to talk to him, talking to him. Uh, and so I hope you'll stick around with the podcast. Please subscribe so you can get notifications when these new episodes come out. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you guys next time. Bye.